The first reading is Luke chapter 8, verses 4 to 15. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop, a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes up and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. The second reading is from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, through to chapter 2, verses 4. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. 
He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tiffany. I had a friend of mine who used to say, when the scriptures are read well, they, they speak for themselves. And um, Tiffany, that's read well. Lovely. Let me pray. Father, you've given us your word. We've just heard it. May we pay, pay the most careful attention. You've given us your son. May we listen to him in the power of your Holy Spirit. And for his glory, we pray, not our own. Amen. As some of you will know, I met the now Prince and Princess of Wales. They were the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge then. At St Andrew's Cathedral on Easter Day 2014, when they signed the First Fleet Bible, which is a Bible and a prayer book that were on the First Fleet. That's why they're called the First Fleet Bible. They're Australia's oldest books, not the oldest books in Australia, but they're Australia's oldest books, and they're in our basement, which is amazing. Um, the Prince and Princess joined his parents, Charles and Di, his grandparents, the late Queen and Prince Philip, his grandfather, George VI, and Edward VIII signed the book too some 102 years ago. Now, how did this happen? It happened because we wrote to Kensington Palace when the tour was announced, and lo and behold, they replied in a letter. And when they did, of course, we treated that letter with care. We read it, and again, took note, and we replied with thoughtfulness. It wasn't junk mail. It was a letter from a future king. We pay the most careful attention precisely because who the letter was from. And it resulted in a fun 10-minute meeting with a future king, um, including one or two jovial moments. I know I look like an idiot there. But, you know, I thought the joke was funny. <laughs> now, I say this by way of illustration, lest I get a flurry of texts from all you budding revolutionaries and Republicans. When you get a note from a son and heir of the king, you pay the, most you pay the most careful attention. The primary imperative embedded in the book of Romans, the main command, is that you pay 
most careful attention. You listen up to what you hear and have heard because of who is speaking. Chapter 2, verse 1, God has spoken to us through a son. And this command to listen is throughout the book and is in its opening chapters. For example, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. There are lots more imperatives in the book of Hebrews, plenty of them, so we'll have plenty to do. But there's also a primary warning, lest we think this is a matter of mere personal choice. Chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape judgment if we ignore so great a salvation? And so we begin a series in the book of Hebrews. It's still about hope, transforming hope. The book of Hebrews is a word about hope and faith in a time of suffering and fear. The message of the book comes in a context quite different from our own to very Jewish followers of Jesus. We aren't Jewish. Most of us aren't experiencing extreme persecution. We aren't, I assume. Maybe we are. I don't think the same way. And yet the imperatives and warnings remain. As we often say here at Church Hill about parts of the Bible that are hard, this book is written for us, but not to us. And so we'll have to go to work. Another saying we have around here is, treasure must be dug for. And another way to, to put that, I read this, this week, treasure is rarely found at the mouth of a cave. Treasure is rarely found at the mouth of a cave. So paying the most careful attention will have two layers. The actual words in the book, what do they mean? And how they might apply to us in a very different age, a very different culture, and a very different kind of suffering. In the original language, in the Greek, the title of the book is simple. It is just simply to the Hebrews. You can see it here in this very ancient manuscript, Pros Hebraeus, towards the Hebrews. But is it a letter to the Hebrews, an epistle? Is it a book to the Hebrews, as we often say? Is it an essay to the Hebrews? It is most likely a word of encouragement, as the author will later, later say, which it could be argued is like a sermon, a very long one, much longer than this one, I hasten to say. So it's a word of encouragement to the Hebrews, a sermon to the Hebrews. We don't know who authored it, doesn't start like a letter, since it isn't one, so there isn't a from this to the saints in. Origen wrote in the third century, he reckoned that it had Paul's theology with someone else's phraseology and construction. He said, if you think of it as Paul's, you probably do the right thing. But he said, who wrote the epistle is known to God alone. He wrote that in the third century AD. The accounts that have reached us suggest that it was either Clement, who became Bishop of Rome, or Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Acts. In other words, who the Sam Hill knows? Who wrote, he who wrote 
Hebrews, towards Hebrews. If you have an idea at the end of this year, please enlighten us. <laughs> the context is suffering for being a Christian. They're Jewish believers in Jesus, sometime between 50 and 70 AD, and they're getting tired, like you might be getting tired. He says, when they came to faith, boom, what joy. And it wasn't because things were easy, things were hard. He says, remember, I showed you this last week, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. And then he explains the conflict full of suffering. He says, sometimes you are publicly exposed to insult, pre-social media, and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. You joyfully accepted it. You know, you said, take it. I think I said last week, I met a guy here at church. He was brought to church here, a Syrian guy. And some five years before he'd come to speak to us, part of a persecution in Syria, and uh, he'd had his house burnt down. And he explained that before his house was burned down, he was what one might call a pretty traditional sort of person. He was Syrian Orthodox, Christian, but, you know, a bit more like this, turn up, a bit more to do with nationality than anything else. And he said, after they took away his house, God awakened his heart in new ways. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. He said, burn it down before I give away Christ. Why? Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence, your hope, another imperative. So what do you say to people who are suffering in such ways? Well, that's what to Hebrews is all about. And here's a question, what would you say, if you were me, to Australians who are willing to give up, perhaps give up Christ for so much less? In other words, what guardrails do we offer to ensure followers of Jesus keep the confidence they have? You might say guardrails are re restrictive, you know. They keep me restricted. Well, they're there, obviously, for a good reason, because falling off is the bad thing. What guardrails will ensure that they keep their hope? Unless we believe that everyone in this room is a follower of Jesus, I want this series to be about the hope of which we speak. What is it? Such that millions, then and now, would suffer and indeed die before throwing it all away. So four questions for our text today, and they're in your orders of service if you're writing notes. Um, I got the outline, you can see it. I got the outline from a teacher at Oliver's school, my son's school, when he entered year seven. He said this, he said, all teenagers, actually he said all boys, want to know three things. What they've got to do, when they've got to do it by, and what happens if they don't do it. And as my children have got older, um, I've realized but they also want to know why, what you've got to do, why you've got to do it, when you've got to do it by, and what happens if you don't. And so that then is the outline for my message today. I want to start in chapter 2, verse 1, what you've got to do, take you very briefly through chapter 1, talk about why you have to do it, when you have to do it by, some excerpts from chapter 3, 
and what happens if you don't. And for those who are worried about time, this is weighted in the first two points. First, what do you have to do? What do you got to do? And the answer is, listen up. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay careful attention. Therefore, from chapter 1, we must pay the most careful attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away, or in the original language, that we do not drift. There's a challenge here with a reason in the form of a warning. The challenge is pay careful attention to what you've heard. There's a sense in the original language that means to a greater degree than you currently have. So, for example, in the King James Version, we ought to give the most earnest heed, here it is, the most earnest heed to the things which we have heard. In other words, with the things that you've heard, step up. Step up your listening. And the reason to step up in the form of a warning is so that you will not drift. The image here is of a boat in the storm. Let's make it a motorboat. Let's make it a tinny. This is Australia. Unless the motor is actually on and the driver is concentrating, the boat could easily be taken by the currents, the pressures of society. The writer is saying, to the degree that you step up in your listening skills, in your openness to what the Lord has for you, to that degree will in some sense determine whether you remain standing in Christ over a lifetime. Not entirely, of course. God is at work in us slackers, of which I count myself one. He's full of grace, but the warning remains. Here are some very practical things that it will mean. It will mean sitting forward in your seat is a metaphor. Sitting forward in your seat with a deep expectation that the Lord has something for you. Not back in your seat. Assessing. It will mean fostering a hunger for the word. And you say, who wants to be hungry? Well, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger. Tell yourself that your diet can be improved, that you can step up in your knowledge. No more theological junk food. And not a la carte either, where you pick and choose your theology. I was talking to 4 p.m. and saying, going to church is not like going to Dimmicks. You go to Dimmicks and you say, what do I need? What interests me? And you go to that section and you... You determine the curriculum for your life. You find out what's relevant. You go to the self-help. You go to wherever. We, however, get given a word from above. As strange as this is, this text is. It will mean starting or maybe reinvigorating regular personal Bible reading. It will mean wisdom to pick who and what you listen to. I'm not talking about, you know, who the best speakers are. I'm saying there's a lot of stuff that can take you away from Christ. The internet has an infinity amount of junk on it, theologically speaking. Rabbit hole after rabbit hole, and people get caught down them. This is in part why reading the Bible in community is so important. This is why 6 p.m. is important, community groups. The men's dinner, uh, you know, is about learning in community. It will mean nurturing curiosity and asking questions as you sit forward in your seat. 
having what you might call an open mind or a, or a learning spirit. It will mean soaking yourself in the Word, which might mean memory verses as an adult. Maybe chapter 2, verse 1 might be one. It will mean coping with strange and difficult texts that you first don't understand. This is not the self-help section of Dimmicks. It will mean reading, marking, learning, and inwardly digesting. This is what Jesus is saying in the parable of the sower, read to us by Tiffany a moment ago. It's a parable about seeds that a farmer throws, and some of the seed falls on the path, where, because birds are hungry and the path is, you know, the birds come and eat it up. That's what birds do to seed on the ground. Some seed, Jesus said, fell on rocky ground. The roots don't go deep. The sun scorches the new bud coming out of the ground from a, a shallow from shallow roots. Some seed, he said, fell on among thorns, where the thorns choked the plant as it grew. And lastly, some seed fell on fertile soil, where the roots went deep and it bears much fruit. Jesus called out, right after he, he said this parable, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, is that you? Yeah, touch your ear, go on, go on, touch your ear, thank you. You're my only willing congregation. Touch your ear again. Right? You got an ear to hear? Because not everybody who has an ear can hear. They're not, they, won't, they won't hear. They'll choose not to hear. Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And in Mark's version, makes it even clearer, consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. The seed, z, represent, firstly, those who hear, and those who walk out today ignoring what they have heard. That's the seed on the path. The seed on the rocky ground uh, is those who hear, the roots aren't deep, so suffering comes along and you drift. This second seed is the tension in Hebrews. Thirdly, there are those who hear and get choked by pleasures, not suffering, pleasures, the cares of the world, like wealth. And lastly, of course, these are those who hear the word and your heart is soft and you're willing, fertile ground, you're keen, you're listening, leaning forward, the roots go deep and it bears fruit. That's what, that's what you've got to do, listen up. Secondly then, why do you have to do it? And the answer in the text is because God has spoken fully and finally in Jesus, chapter 1. And before you write that off as impossible or exclusive, I want you to listen in, lean in. This might be true, and I'm going to spend exactly four minutes going through this quite complex text of chapter 1. So I want you to open up a Bible and follow with me. Can someone yell me the page number? 987, 967, 967, the author of Hebrews begins his magisterial sermon in this way, 1 verse 1, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son. 
In other words, God has always been sending messages through the prophets in many ways and to our ancestors, not just any ancestor, the Jewish ones, to Jewish people and eventually the Gentiles. And not just any prophets, the Jewish ones in Scripture, to Jewish people and eventually to the Gentiles, which is Genesis through Malachi. God has has spoken in the past, Moses to Isaiah, over thousands and thousands of years. But he always intended that an eternal son who was there at the beginning of creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would be his final word when he showed up. And so in 1 verse 2, you find out that the son was there at the beginning, the son through whom he made the universe. The son predates matter. And he'll be there at the end whom God appointed heir of all things. He was there before creation, and he is the inheritor of it. (laughs) What is that son right now? He is, 1 verse 3, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation or imprint of his being. You know, um, a stamp, and there's wax. Uh, The stamp pushes into the wax. You pull the two apart. And the stamp and the wax are identical. You want to see God? Read Jesus. Get to know Jesus. The radiance of God's glory. And he is sustaining, currently, all things by his powerful word, 1 verse 3. If Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the eternal Son were not sustaining things by his powerful word, the universe would cease to exist. That's what's being said here. And who is this son? He has a name. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, that one. And you might say, what did Jesus ever do for us? What what did the Romans ever do for us? After he had had provided purification for sins, my sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, my Lord. Verses 4 to 13 are proof that Jesus is the goat the greatest of all time, but it's proof for a Jewish person needing Jewish proofs. And so it's a bit foreign to us, but we don't get to set the curriculum. Verse 4, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Why is it so important that Jesus is superior to the angels? I'll come back to that. In verse 5, he takes these verses from the Old Testament about the king... Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have become your father. 2 Samuel 7, of David's descendant, I will be his father, he will be my son. Same down in verse 13, to which of the angels did God ever say, Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. They're rhetorical questions, the answer is none of the angels got that word. The language is never used for angels. Quoting the Greek translation of Deuteronomy 32, the writer says that all God's angels worship him. That's why he's better than the angels. They worship him. But in contrast to the worship of the Son are the angels. He makes his angels spirits. His servants flames of fire. They are flitting and changing here now and gone. But about the Son, he says, not flitting and changing, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. That passage is about David 
which is why the phrase, your throne, O God, is one of the most confounding things in the Old Testament. How is David conflated with God? Verse 12, you remain the same and your years will never end. In contrast to the angels, spirits and flames of fire is the son who is king forever and to be worshipped. He's better than the angels, not like the angels. Verse 14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? He's better than the angels. And by the way, I believe in angels. I really do. So why is it important that Jesus is superior to the angels? Because of chapter 2, verse 2. You will not understand chapter 1 without chapter 2, verse 2. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding, right? he's speaking about the Torah, which was, it, it was believed that the Torah, the Jewish law, was a gift from the angels, through Moses, but a gift from the angels, that the angels were behind the all-important law, since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received just punishment, how much more? We'll come back to that in a moment. But the writer is saying, if you were ever tempted to go back to the comfortable Jewish systems, the Torah, the law, if you were tempted to do that because of persecution, the confiscation of your property, pressure to choose a more normal path, which isn't so, I don't know, ugly to a society moving in a direction and you're not moving and people want you to move in that direction if you attempted to do that the writer is saying you will be on the wrong side of history he was there before creation he'll inherit it all that's the argument the son is the is god's final word he's done the work of salvation he's the king he'll return to judge and he's not going anywhere unlike the angels this is the reason to listen up and to pay attention. Thirdly, when do you have to do it by? And the answer in the text is today, not tomorrow, not Friday. The writer will pick up on Psalm 95 in chapters 3 and 4. We read it to begin our service. It goes like this in Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice. I could say, tonight, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And today's the day. Don't muck around. Don't put it off. Not the sort of thing you can put off because it's actually about your heart and it's about the fact that the Lord is, is the one speaking. Now, you meet me, arrange a meeting today, for today, and you say to me, I can't meet you. You fob me off till Friday. Fine. You know, I'll find time on Friday. No problema. You don't do that to God. You know, if there really is a God, you don't say, uh, I'll figure it out on Friday. You've misunderstood the terms. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And I'm going to pray a prayer at the end for any of you who want to pray the prayer of new faith today. And then, you know, Graham and Bronwyn and me, Tiffany, maybe Emma will be up the back. Love to pray with you. Lastly, what happens if you don't? The initial answer, of course, is that you're likely to drift um, if you're close to God's voice. But the deeper, scarier 
important reason is that you'll find yourself judged by God. Chapter 2, verse 2, for since the message spoken through the angels, the Torah, Moses, was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, that God was looking, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation as the one through Jesus of Nazareth? We tend to think of the Jewish law as tough and Jesus being soft. And there's an argument, of course, that Jesus is full of grace in a way that the Torah holds our feet to the fire. But the argument here is that if the Torah was this tough, how much tougher if we ignore so, so great a salvation, one that's even better than the one that came through the angels? That will be the argument throughout Hebrews. I touch in on it today, look for it through the series and be warned. And in his final words, he says, the salvation was first announced by the Lord, chapter 2, verse 3. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Other people heard that. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him, which tells you that the author of Hebrews was not a disciple of Jesus, but listened to those who were. And indeed, all of this was confirmed by miracles. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles in the life of Jesus. You can read them in the Gospels. But also today, by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. I believe in miracles. So, a word about Jesus is your first guardrail in our series in Hebrews. And note, it's a word about Jesus, not the sword, not manipulation, not undue pressure, just a good word with the guardrails of a warning from the Lord. That letter that was sent to me from Kensington Palace, it said... Uh, let the prince guide the conversation. He'll know what to say. Don't start it. He'll start it. Don't close it down. He'll know the questions to ask you. <laughs> it, the letter didn't say this. You know, when he's bored, he'll walk away. Something like that. But when he looked at the Bible and the prayer book, he was genuinely interested. You know, his wife said, you know, there's your mum's signature, he said. She said, look at your mum's signature. Imagine that. Um, you know, who knows if he's seen all those signatures in one place. So the conversation went for a nice, tidy 10 minutes while the entire church was locked inside and could not leave until the prince left and the two people who were waiting in the aisle for the conversation to finish. The first two people were the Archbishop of Sydney and the Prime Minister, waiting in the heat in the aisle. Eventually, the Archbishop whispered to me, hurry up. The Prime Minister is waiting. To which I replied, he can wait. <laughs> the Prince is not finished. To carry the illustration, the son and heir is still speaking. Jesus is still speaking by his spirit. He's greater than the angels. I listen to him and to no Caesar. But that, of course, is the rest of Hebrews let me pray a prayer of new faith and then of deepening faith. Father, the scriptures say today if you hear his voice and we've read your word. This is your words to us. And so we take great delight in them, but we ask you in this moment to give us new faith, living faith,
a deep desire then to follow Jesus and to do so over a lifetime. And so I pray that you'd flood our hearts, perhaps in a new way, with the message of Jesus Christ. And then, Father, I pray that you would deepen us in our faith in him. Show us new and better things. Create and nurture in us a thirst. Help us to long for more and deeper. To pay careful attention to what we've heard so that we will not drift. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.